if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 26. T- today uh, is our first fruit Sunday. And today what we're going to do is we're going to actually lay out the principle of the first fruit offering. We're going to lay out the principle, uh, but the offering itself is going to be open today, and it's going to go from now all the way until uh, the end of the month. So it's going to start today. It's going to go for the rest of this month. And again, like I said, kind of during transition, we don't want anybody uh, to give in the offering who hasn't first prayed about what to give. This is different from a tithe. Uh, a tithe, you, you, you know, you, you give in your tithe every, every week based on whatever it is you make or however that works in your own life. But this is different than that. This is something that we want you to be prayerful about. And please, please, please hear this at the beginning of this teaching, especially if you don't know us that well or if you're newer to this place. Uh, this is not meant to pressure you into doing something you cannot afford to do. And, uh, and this is not to tell you to do something to make, we don't want to make you feel guilt. We don't want to make you feel this like weird thing. Like we give these sermons to teach you principles that are in the Bible that are laid out for your benefit. And the financial piece uh, in the Bible, yes, it does kind of explain how uh, tithes, offerings, first fruit, that is how God takes care of his church. But we believe he's going to take care of his church no matter what you do, no matter what I do. God is going to keep moving forward in the city. He's going to keep moving the mission forward. But I want you guys to note that, right? And if you're new here and you're thinking, man, I knew it. Church just wants my money. Listen, we do not want your money. Keep your money. I'm just telling you, keep it. We exist, this church exists for you. We exist for this community and we exist to make Jesus manifested and known and visible in the community. So that's why we exist. That's why people who are part of this body get excited about being able to give so that we can do a better job of that. Okay? So I want to make sure that you hear that from me before we get into it. Um, uh, That's why we take this first fruit so seriously. It is a seed into the work that's going to be done throughout this entire year. Now, I want to first tackle this question because a lot of people probably ask the question, well, why do you even take a first fruit? What is the first fruit? Why take the offering? And here's why, it, here's why we do it biblically. Okay, so the Bible says this in Nehemiah 10. Okay, in Nehemiah 10, it says, we obligate ourselves to, t- uh, to, to take up the first fruit of the ground and the first fruit of every tree year after year, every year, uh, we, and we bring that to the house of the Lord. So that's, how, that's how, what it says in Nehemiah 10. And then it goes on to say, uh, lists a few other different ties, other different things that we do to help uh, the church. And then it ends by saying this in 1039. It says, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. We won't neglect it. We're not going to let something happen to that. We're going to do our part there. And again, you're going to understand this more when we lay out this principle uh, in full in just a few minutes. But the church, it doesn't run without the people of God making it run. Again, we believe God can do anything. Uh, We believe that God's mission is always moved forward no matter what. But he typically does it through people. And uh, I used to get really nervous talking about money. I used to get really nervous giving these sermons about giving until I started to see the fruit that was coming from all that we've been giving in our church, both in your life, yeah, that's good, in your life and in the, and in the lives of the people of the community for what we've been able to do with it. For those of you who are unfamiliar, we've been able to do a lot with a very small amount. Uh, it's been very, very, very exciting. Uh, the gospel last year was preached to thousands of people. Through, uh, through Courage Church and through what we've been able to do. We've been able to tangibly show people what Jesus looks like in this community for many, many different ways. And uh, we, we just, we've done a lot with a little. So God's always taking care of his church. He's always taking care of our church. Uh, and every year we've expanded our reach uh, in the community. And it's going to be the exact same this year, I have no doubt. But I, I do want to make sure that you're just clear about a couple things before we get really into this. 
The first fruit offering is a seed into the mission of the church. The mission of the church is reconciliation. And I want to kind of share this with you. The mission is us being Christ's ambassadors to reconciling the world back to God. That is why we exist. We did a teaching on this back in October, uh, a very important teaching. But one thing that we've learned over our time here is that we, we have to hold mission so closely, so tightly but we can hold vision a little bit more loosely. We, we still want to be intentional with vision, but vision we can hold a little bit more loosely. And what we mean by that is we can make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. We can make our plans, but ultimately the Lord is going to do whatever he's going to do. And it's God and God alone who brings the harvest. So sticking to the job that he's given us, the ministry that he's given us, the, the, um, the mission that he's given us in the Bible is more important to us than specifically how all of it looks. And the reason that that matters on a day like today is because if you think that you are buying into something when you give this offering, it's just simply not true. You're not buying something when you give this offering. You are sowing something when you've given this offering. You are planting something in this, when you give into this offering that only God can harvest. You're planting something that only God can bring a harvest from and only God can give growth to. So we love vision. We share vision often. Uh, and and, and that's, you know, that's why we have the Courage House because we shared a vision. We gave to it and it was really amazing. Um, and there's going to be more of that coming. But the biblical point of the first fruit, especially the more I'm studying it, as I've come to realize it is this, is that we will not neglect the house of the Lord. Now this is kind of my last prerequisite before I get into this. And that's this. When we teach Old Testament... When we teach Old Covenant, you must understand that we are teaching these things as principle and not as law. There's a very big difference, and you have to be able to decipher the two. You have to make that distinction. If you hear this as, I have to do this, you're hearing it wrong. You don't have to do this. In the most practical sense, the first fruit offering is a seed into your family, and it is a seed into the church, both spiritually and physically, that that the kingdom of, that, to see the kingdom of God move forward. So all we're asking you to do is pray. We're asking you to pray and be faithful to whatever it is that God puts in your heart to do for this offering. So today what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at one of the classic texts, probably the classic text of the Old Testament uh, for the first fruit offering. Uh, and that's found in Deuteronomy uh, 26. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually focus particularly on one line that sticks out in this passage, at least it stuck out to me. And that line is obviously my father was a wandering Aramean. Right? Obviously. Why would we talk about anything besides this? So here we go. I'm going to read 11 verses for you. I'm just going to read off the screen, and then we're going to be in it. My father was a wandering Aramean. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you, uh, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the house that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make a response before the Lord your God saying, a wandering Aramean was my father. 
And he went down into Egypt, and he sojourned there, and few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, and they humiliated us, and they laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you, God, for all you're doing in our community all you're doing in our church, all, your, uh, all you did last year, Lord, through Joy to the D, through Backpack Giveaway, through all of the toys and we were able to give away, all of the people we were able to give Christmas to, all of the people that got backpacks in the summer and medical help last spring. God, we're excited for what you're going to do here in 2019, God. But God, as we're going to explore this passage, Lord, we just speak life into people's new year. We speak hope and prosperity and a future, God, in, in a positive turn of events, Father God, if maybe things seem like they're going the wrong way, God. Lord, I pray, Father God, that people would leave here knowing that they don't have to be today who they were yesterday. They don't have to live the same way this year that they lived last year. They can have different results and be something new, God. And we just ask that you would make us all new, Father God, and more and more in your image. Holy Spirit, right now I ask that you would speak through me today, Lord, that everything that you'd have me to say, I would say that, and let everything else fall away, let it fall to the ground before it ever comes out of my mouth, God. We're, we're so grateful to be able to serve you and to be called your hands and feet here in this great city, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there was a man named Jacob who wrestled with God. His, uh, when he was born, he came out of his mother's womb, he was grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. That's literally how the Bible describes him, his birth. His mother, Rebecca, was an Aramean who married Abraham's son, Isaac. And then uh, Genesis 31, it tells us that Jacob actually lived for 20 years in Aram. So when the Bible spoke of Jacob and Esau, he, they always described it like this. Esau was a skilled hunter. He was kind of a man of the field, right? But Jacob, uh, but Jacob was quiet. He tended to dwell in tents. Which, I mean, that's kind of what we like. Don and I like to go camping, so I'm not against the tents thing, but he, he liked to do tents. Uh, he moved around a lot. He wandered around a lot from his birth story all the way to adulthood. He'd always sought the rights of being the firstborn, of course, which did not belong to him. He came out grabbing that heel because he didn't, Esau came out first. Jacob was not the firstborn. He actually tricked his brother Esau into giving him his birthright. And he stole the blessing that his father Isaac had intended for Esau. He stole it from him. And more things that weren't necessarily his fault. He worked seven years to earn the hand of Rachel to be married to her. And then he was kind of screwed out of that deal. And he was given Leah to marry instead. And he said, hey, you got to work another seven years for Rachel. He would later actually rob Laban, uh, his father-in-law. And they would run, and he would run away with his daughters and with the household gods. So Jacob spent a lot of his life on the run, wandering, hiding, being chased, having to reconcile over and over and over again for all of the pain that he had caused to other people. 
Eventually, he landed in a place called Canaan, and he lived as an alien there. He was a refugee in this place. And he lived there until a severe drought came. It fell upon Canaan, and it forced Jacob to move with his sons to Egypt. Once again, they were refugees, now in Egypt. They were leaving a land that was destroyed by famine, seeking a home in a place that was flourishing. And they found their way to a place called Goshen, uh, where Jacob's son Joseph, kind of in another behind-the-scenes situation, uh, had gained unbelievable influence with Pharaoh. There's actually this moment in Genesis 47 when Pharaoh is talking to Jacob and Jacob's sons, and he actually asks his sons, he says, guys, what's your occupation? And this is what they say. Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. See, who your father was and what your father did was a very defining factor in the type of life that you lived. It was not enough just to say, hey, I'm a shepherd. It was not enough to just say, hey, we're shepherds. No, we come from a long line of shepherds. This is our inheritance. We did, this is what we've always done. We didn't just come from nowhere. We honored the past and continued the legacy. Then when Pharaoh turns to Jacob, he says, Jacob, how old are you? And this is how Jacob responds. My life of wandering has lasted 130 years. Then he says this. He says, the years have been few and the years have been difficult. Now, 130 years doesn't seem like a short life to me. I think most of us would be like, that's sweet if you make it that far. It'd be awesome, right? But when you think about how much of that life was spent on the run, how much of that life was lived never in a settled place, you realize it's actually possible to live a very long life and yet reap a very little harvest. It's possible to live your life stuck in a pattern that keeps resulting in all the things that you never wanted. In other words, Jacob tells Pharaoh... Life didn't always turn out the way that I had hoped that it was going to turn out. It did not go the way that I had expected it to. I worked for one thing, I got another. I worked for, Ra- worked for Rachel and I was given Leah. I betrayed my father. I screwed over my brother. I robbed my father-in-law. Right? That's his life. I hurt people that I never thought that I would in order to build the life that ultimately has gotten me no closer to who I actually want to be. So looking back, he said, hey, you know what? The years they flew by... They were really painful, and here I am. And I don't know how I got here. But as the story goes, Pharaoh actually tells uh, Joseph, Jacob's son, he says, hey, have them settle in the best of the land. So they're like, okay, now we're super blessed. In the midst of all this, let's give them the very best for the rest of their life here in Egypt. So Jacob, their father, Joseph's father, Egypt's, or Israel's father, he was a wandering Aramean. And so now, every year, when the Israelites bring the first fruit to the priest, they quote this little paragraph that's now considered to be a historical creed that begins by saying, My father was a wandering Aramean who went down to Egypt as a refugee, but there he became a great nation. But then the tide actually begins to turn. Because Exodus 1 begins by telling us that the descendants of Jacob in the land of Egypt were 70 persons. So there were 70 of them when they started. But then it multiplied from there into a great nation. They became larger and larger and larger. But the larger and larger they became, the more of a threat Egypt began to see them as. So to prevent an uprising, the Egyptians oppressed them and humiliated them. And they had their foot on their back 
and basically turned them into slaves. And this lasted for 430 years. Suddenly Israel were slaves to Egypt. And so the writer, Moses, here in Deuteronomy, he's bringing all of this back to memory. He says, this is what you say. He says, my father was a wandering Aramean. And they ended, up in, they ended up in Egypt, and then things went really well, and then all of a sudden they weren't so well anymore. And then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and with signs and wonders. We talked... Um, a couple of years ago, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. And for those of you who remember, the Ten Commandments start by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? And this is very, very, very significant because before uh, God gave Israel a single commandment, first he told them, hey, I brought you out. In fact, uh, even today, uh, the way that the, the Jewish culture reads the Ten Commandments is they actually read the first commandment as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. And then they would read the second commandment as, have no other gods before me, where we would start there, because we think it's like a, an introduction, and then, you know, that's not the way they read it, because it was so important to them to remember what God did. You were here, and then God brought you here. He did something amazing on your behalf. That's just, that was very, very, very important. It's basically the same concept. My father was a wandering Aramean. My father was a refugee, who went to Egypt with nothing, and yet God blessed him and took care of his family. Our ancestors later became slaves until God brought them out. And he brought us into this place. So 430 years are over now. He gave us this land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. My father was a wandering Aramean. Now why does this matter so much? that they remember where they came from, why they remember who it was that brought them out, that they remember what God did for them before they do something as a seed into the future. If you don't hold in your life extremely fast to the miracle that God did in your life and in your family and in your career and in your midst or whatever it may be. It can be very easy to see somebody who's two, three, four, maybe five steps behind you who's still struggling and start to think, well, that's just their problem, right? That's just their problem. I pull myself out of my circumstances. They can pull themselves out of their circumstances. But what Moses is saying is, no, remember, you didn't pull yourself out of your circumstances. God had to do that for you. Keep this in the forefront of your mind before you ever start elevating yourself over somebody else for any reason because your circumstances maybe seem to be a bit better than theirs. And I think that that's kind of the first piece to this. It's not the only piece, but it's the first piece. It's simple, but it's very important. Who you are in Christ is not who you deserve to be. Yet grace got a hold of your life and it made you into something you could never ever be without it. And it's invited you to be part of the world's largest family on the world's most important mission, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, reconciling people back to God. See, if you, if you see a refugee, just for an example, and you remember that you once were a refugee, wouldn't that have a profound impact on the way that you treated that refugee? Would it not? If you used to be poor, and maybe you're not poor anymore, but you know that, hey, part of the first fruit goes to take care of the poor, would that not 
be a factor in whether or not you want to contribute to seeing that person's life turned around because your life was once there and now it's turned around. Right? You see the world through someone else's eyes because those used to be your eyes. You used to, have to, you used to be that person. My father was a wandering Aramean. See, when the Israelites would approach the priest with their offering, they did it knowing, hey, we're going to bring a gift, and this gift is actually going to be a seed into the whole community. It was given knowing that everybody was going to uh, reap the benefits of what you're planting in one way or another. So if you're kind of on the upper side of, of society at that point, you remember it wasn't always that way. So in brief, this is kind of what would happen. I just want to give you a very brief recap of uh, first fruit offering, and then we're gonna, and then we'll bring this to a close. But the Hebrew word bekirim is the word for first fruit offering. We, we translate it as, as first fruits. And the bekirim was the part of the harvest that ripened and came forth before the rest of the harvest did. Now this is incredibly significant. All of the pieces to this concept. Because the things that the Bible tells Israel to recite, which we just went through, actually piece together the entire story of Israel. Said, hey, we're going to recap this entire story in one, kind of de- in one kind of decree or one creed. How God brought them to where they are and the connection that they now have to God. What God's done for them with previous harvests. And then this is the big one, what God's going to do for them in this next harvest. So when the bekirim comes forth, the, f- the fruit comes forth, what would happen, uh, this is what would happen in the ancient world. So the bekirim is the part that comes forth before the rest of the harvest. So you don't know what the harvest is going to be. And what would happen was the, the farmers would come out and they would see that first fruit breaking forth. And they would take a little red ribbon, a little scarlet ribbon, and they would tie it around the fruit to dedicate it. To say, no matter what else comes through, everything that's tied in red right now is going to get put in the basket and taken to the priest. This is the first fruit. No matter what else comes. Okay? And so basically what was going on was they were giving this gift out of uncertainty. They were giving this gift not knowing, hey, am I gonna, is more going to come or is this everything? Not knowing for sure. Is it going to be a good year? Is it going to be a crappy year? They don't know. Not knowing for sure what it would be. But as soon as the harvest, the, the, the bakirim would come forward, they wrapped it in a little scarlet ribbon, set it apart saying, this is for the Lord. We actually did a bit of a narrative um, sermon on this a couple of years ago, and I'm going to really quickly uh, fly through a couple of parts of it, um, about all the correlations between the first fruit offering and Jesus. And uh, all the way down to the process, it's very significant the way the Bible works, but farmers would go out and they'd wrap a scarlet ribbon around the bakirim at the beginning of the harvest when it first comes out. But in Matthew's gospel, you get to Matthew 27, right? And, uh, and, and Pilate br- brings Jesus before the people, and the people are like, crucify him. We don't want him. Let-. Pilate's like, hey, I'm washing my hands of his blood. I'm not going to have anything to do with this man's blood. And then, of course, the Jews say, hey, let his blood be on our children. Awful. And then what it says is it says, okay, so they took Jesus to the governor's quarters. They stripped off all his clothes, and they wrapped him in a scarlet Robe. So they stripped him naked and wrapped him in red. Just like this. The next step in the first fruit was the giver would take their fruit, they would put it in a basket, and as Deuteronomy 26 says, they would have to take that basket and place it into the hands of their priest, their authority. And Jesus, of course, while he's on the cross, what does he say? He says, Father, into your hands I place my spirit. Leviticus 23, about the first fruit, uh, says that the priest would then have to lift the basket up 
as a dedication and dedicate it. Just like how Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will do what? I will draw all men unto me. When I'm lifted up on the cross, there will be an offering that will benefit everyone. And the harvest will follow. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, what he's doing is he's showing us how the resurrection of Jesus is only the beginning of what God is going to do in the renewing of humanity. It's only the beginning of what God's going to do even in our midst. And it's only after he did what he did that he could ever draw us to himself. He set the ultimate example by letting go of the things that we love to hold dear in this life so that a greater purpose can be achieved. I absolutely love the way that we get that imagery around uh, Jesus, that over and over and over again, we just see how he's the fulfillment of each and everything that's ever spoken of in the uh, Old Testament, even the laws that were heaped upon these people. But there's something different in life, in your life that has to take place. And I think we learn it from Jesus, right? Because Jesus is willing to give up his entire life so that there could be a harvest, so that we could all eventually have what he has. And, but there's something that has to happen in your heart to be able to relinquish control of something that is yours, not knowing for sure what's coming. See, I love tithing. I think tithing is awesome. I think it's important. But with tithing, you at least have that security of knowing, hey, I have $100 and I'm giving $10 and that still leaves me with $90. And I know I'm going to be okay with $90. Maybe, I don't, maybe it hurts to give it, but at least I know I still have it. You're still left with 90 but first fruits, especially the biblical first fruits, which, again, we're not actually telling you you have to do that. It's old covenant. We're just teaching it in principle. But the full biblical first fruit, first fruit is literally giving the entire first part portion without having any idea what you're going to get that year. Or if you're giving what will be only a fraction of what you know you're going to return to that year. So you just don't know. You say, hey, I, I don't know if I'm going to get a full return or I'm going to get just... Nothing. And that's why I love that this creed that Moses has them recite. He says, my father was a wandering Aramean. See, when you're wandering, you have nowhere to plant your seeds that may reap a harvest. You have nowhere to, you have no home. You have no land. And now here you are, right? And maybe you don't know what the harvest is going to be yet. But you know that God has brought you this far, don't you? And there's certainly no reason for him to ever abandon you now. He's brought you this far. Why would he bring you this far to abandon you now? And church, when I think about our community, I have to tell you, there's a lot of days when I deal with a lot of uncertainty about how God is going to do the things that we believe he wants to do in our midst. About how, God, how are you going to do the things that we see in our minds that we feel like you put in our hearts the things that so consistently so many people have come up and said hey I want to see this and I want to see it. we don't know how all that's going to happen but what I know for sure is that God has brought us this far and there's certainly no reason for him to abandon us now, now I want to bring this all together for you in a way that I hope is a blessing I've been noticing a pattern over the last few years in our world and maybe it's just social media and Facebook and the access we have about and the way the information about everybody just sort of blasts me in the face every single day if I if I stupid enough to get online and actually see it all I, I get the whole all these pictures of people and but it seems to me like every single year for the last few years 
you get into the new year, and all these posts are how everybody's so glad that the previous year's over. Every, I mean, it does not fail. Almost every single post. Every now and then you get, oh, this was the best year ever. Maybe you got married that year. Maybe you had a child, or you had some sort of life moment that really, really set the year apart. But for the most part, the recurring theme, every year in our world right now, from everybody, not just our people, people all over the place, is thank God this year's over. Thank God it's done and we get to move on. Like, life does not seem to be getting any better for people. It's almost as if we're slaves to something and none of us have any idea what it is that's controlling us. We don't even know who has their foot on our back, but we know that someone does. And I've read this passage in Deuteronomy 26, and I've read it for years. And honestly, I've thought about this for years. I've had this, I've like, hey, I've got to do a sermon on this line sometime because I have to figure it out. And so I finally just scheduled it and said, I'm going to figure out what the heck this is saying. There has to be more to this. And suddenly, this week, as I'm reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it, I feel like something just clicked. Actually, two things clicked. And I want to share them with you. And, and this is just stuff that stuck out to me about this. Two things. First of all, Deuteronomy was written before, before Israel enters the promised land. In fact, the passage today starts by saying, when, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you. When you aren't there now, but when you're there and you have something to give, don't keep it for yourself. See, Moses is making them see something that was not there yet. It did not exist yet. He was insisting that they learn to be generous before they have anything at all to be generous with. And to me, this is just incredible. He's making arrangements for what the process will be when the land belongs to them, laying out what will be as if it right now already is. And this is the type of vision that I want for our church and for my life and for, for everybody. One that says, you know what, wherever we end up, whatever it looks like, we're going to always be generous. We're going to always meet people where they are. We're never going to be all about ourselves and ourselves alone. We're always going to be about the community that God has called us to, whatever that looks like. Moses tells them to make this declaration during the first fruit. As in, when that time comes, when you have that first harvest, this is what you do. But first, before you do it and before you give that, first I want you to say this. I want you to say, my father was a wandering Aramean. And then he goes into this section that just seems to be babbling about Egypt and about oppression. And then it hit me. Jacob, the wandering Aramean, left Canaan because there was no harvest. There was no fruit. And to stay, it seems like that would have been suicide for him and his family, right? But he ended up in Egypt where things went really well for his family for a little while. But ultimately, it led to an entire nation being put into slavery. A drought led the people of Israel to Egypt. 
And then Egypt, later on, that same Egypt, they would escape. And now they're at the tail end of their wandering, about to enter the land that was promised to them. And they're to say this, my father was a wandering Aramean. Let me say this to you one more way to make sure that you clearly can hear this. Because there was no harvest the first time, they ended up slaves. I look at the world. I look everywhere, and it feels like everywhere I look, there's drought. Everywhere. Spiritual drought, emotional drought, relationship drought, discontent, discomfort, unsatisfaction. And the easiest mindset that we could ever buy into is the, is the mindset that says it would be better in Egypt. Even after 430 years of slavery, at the first taste of freedom with a little bit of frustration and a little bit of uncertainty, as soon as that hit them, what do they say? Let's go back to Egypt. It'd be better in Egypt. We're always someplace different in our minds than where we are in reality. That is our world. We're here, but our minds are here. We're living here, but our minds are living here. And quite frankly, it's very easy to live that way, especially if you never fully give yourself to anything. But the truth is, wherever you go in life, you're going to be there. That's why things follow people. That's why Jacob, every single place he went, it's the same thing happened. The reason that Jacob's problems followed him is because Jacob was there. Every single time, Jacob wandered from place to place to place, and he was always there. And until he does something different, his life is not going to be different. Guys, God wants us to plant seeds because seeds take root. And where roots are planted, he and he alone can water them and can bring about growth. But what Moses was making his people declare is that this time it's going to be different because we're not going back there again. We're going to do something differently. Moses tells them we're never, ever going back. And when that Bikiram comes, that first fruit, that, that early part of the harvest, even before you see the harvest, you're going to give it to God because when you give it to God, you're locking yourself into relying on what God's going to do in that community in with that harvest. Give it without knowing, because giving without knowing is the ultimate form of trust. Israel had some serious trust issues with God. We know that. They built a golden calf because Moses was on a mountain for too long. They, they start to feel uncertain about stuff. They said, God, Moses, take us back to Egypt. We were better in Egypt. We'd be better off slaves. They always struggled to see what God was doing right in their midst every time. So Moses is saying, give that Bikiram without seeing the harvest. And I know that's going to be hard for you. That would have been extremely hard for Israel. That's why Moses has to take them all the way back. Remember what happened when there was no harvest? You became slaves. Your nation was oppressed. You were enslaved. You were killed. And to me, it's almost like an ancient reframing of that concept that we hear so often today, right? That... If you always do what you've always done, you're always going to end up in the same place that you've always been. It's about determining beforehand that we're not going to live 
this new year controlled by old habits. Moses says, before we even see what it's like over there, before we ever even enter that land, before we even know what our lives are going to look like, we're first going to determine, first and foremost, that our lives are not going to be about ourselves this year. They're going to be about others. We're going to take care of others. And we're going to trust God to take care of us. We will live generously, showing an upside-down model of what life looks like in a world that's run by greed. Let's flip it. Because that's the way of Jesus. With Jesus, whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever tries to keep it is going to lose it anyway. So ultimately, what do you want? A harvest is something that is completely out of my hands. It's out of your hands. It's out of Moses' hands. It's out of all of our hands. But by saying these words, you're making a declaration that says, I'm not going back to what it was back there. I'm not going back to that. I'm going to give the first of the harvest to the one who brings the harvest because I can't control any of it anyway, and he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's what makes the Bikiram so powerful because I can't promise you a thing. I can't be like, dude, you give to our church, you're going to get this, you're going to get this, you're going to get this. You're gonna... I can't promise you any of that. I don't know what this year is going to bring. I don't know what it's going to be like. I know I'm praying for you. I know we're praying with you. I know we'll, we'll sit down with you. We'll talk through whatever it might be. I know that I'm believing that God's going to do some really amazing things in our midst this year, in our community this year. I, but other than that, the only thing I know is that God honors people who trust him. And finances, are, they're not the only way that you can prove that you trust God. But they certainly are the thing that most of us hold the most tight. But let's make this a year of sowing, whatever that looks like. Maybe it'll be financial sometimes. Maybe it'll be sowing seeds of good deeds into the lives of the people in our community, the lives of people who need you, the lives of the people who need you to open your home to them, whatever it might look like. You know, last year our verse for the year, it was Galatians 6, 9. It was, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up, in due season, a harvest will come. And we don't always know what it looks like. We don't always know how God's moving. But we know that if we're faithful to do what he says, he's going to reap a harvest from that faithfulness in our lives. Keep doing good this year. Keep loving people. Man, if there's one thing that I've realized more than ever from being here at this church and with Don and I leading this, it's that this thing is out of our control. It is out of our hands. We just need to love people. We need to love one another. We need to show up. But there's not a single thing that's in my heart or her heart or our team's heart or your guys' heart. There's nothing in our hearts that we can accomplish on our own. It's, it's too big. But for every single dream that God put on our hearts, man, it would be a miracle for it to happen. I'm just going to be honest. It would be a miracle for it to happen. Yet I still believe it will. But in the meantime, we're not making our lives work around building an empire of some vision that we had. We're just not doing that. We're making our lives work about building people and about helping them take that next step with their walk with Jesus. And all the things in our hearts, man, God, he's going to have to take care of that stuff. All the things in your heart, all your dreams, God's going to have to do something there. But when I look back at where we were, and the life we once had and the people we once had, I can say with confidence, man, we're not going back to that. We're moving forward. God has brought us through more trials and transitions and uncertainty than we ever imagined. And he's 
continuing to work in our midst and in our church. And I'm just excited by that this year. I'm really, really excited for this year. I'm excited to just stand up here and say, you know what, my father was a wandering Aramean. But God brought him out. God brought him somewhere better. God saved the day. And we're not going to wander anymore. We're going to sow and we're going to plant roots.